Uh, we got Diablo Frank and this illegal machine. Fix it just walked away. <laughs> uh, he said, I'm going to go look at trades and walked away. And that was 30 minutes ago and we haven't seen him again. Let it go. Like, if you don't want to be here, just say you don't want to. Don't just walk, just walk away. We're human beings. <laughs> Hey, so did you see we were, we were at Peter David's table and he was going through a stack of books signing and we got to a book that wasn't his, so he just pulled it and handed it back to the guy and said, that's not me. Yeah, like yeah. You know, yeah, Friday I was over here with him and uh, D. Mateus. It's, <laughs> it's D. E. D. Mateus. Yeah, D. Mateus. Okay, so they were like taking a picture with him with every single book he signed, like proofing it. Uh, like eBay stuff? Those are unfortunate people, yeah. Our current situation. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a limbo purgatory kind of thing, huh? Yeah. Hey, you know what Demetrius writes a lot about? Purgatory? Purgatory. Got your questions ready? You're not going to ask him somebody else's questions, are you? I'm waiting for that big voice yeah. to come booming over the speaker system. <laughs> Unless he doesn't know he's doing that. <laughs> they call a hot mic, I believe. <laughs> J.M. DeMatteis is a prolific comic book and screenwriter. He has had numerous lengthy runs on Spider-Man titles and authored some of the webhead's most popular stories, including Craven's Last Hunt. He is responsible for fan-favorite episodes of Justice League Unlimited, Batman the Brave and the Bold, and animated features like Batman vs. Robin. He's one of the few comic book writers who can engage an audience with stories about magic, featuring characters like Dr. Fate, The Spectre, Phantom Stranger, Dr. Strange, and Justice League Dark. Themes of mysticism are also prevalent in his many creator-owned works, such as Seekers Into the Mystery, The Last One, the Stardust Kid, and Moonshadow. He's a pioneer of the grim and gritty movement of the 1980s, but always balanced with a sincere humanism too often missing from the work of his contemporaries like Frank Miller and Alan Moore. He is probably best known as a scripter of Just League International, who in combination with plotter Keith Giffen produced one of the rare examples of comedic superhero stories that are legitimately laugh-out-loud funny, even 30 years after their jokes were first told. So we're here with J.M. DeMatteis, and I'm about to waste a bunch of his time asking a lot of really dirty questions, so hopefully I won't completely bore you to tears. First, I want to talk about your Marvel work. How did you come to work on The Defenders? The Defenders was one of the first books that I uh, that I did when I was uh, started at Marvel, because I, I started, I sold my first stories to DC. That's where I broke in. And uh, I had done some fill-in work for, for Marvel, for Jim Shooter, who, was, uh, who really liked my work and wanted to bring me over there, and... He knew that I had a passion for Doctor Strange, so that's why he uh, he said, "I'm going to give you the Defenders because I know you love Doctor Strange," so, and that's how it started. By the way, I, I don't have a question about it, but I just want to say I loved your brief run in the '90s on Doctor Strange that ended up that last series, the last long form series they did. I had a great time with that also, and it was like by the time I think I'd finished the first or second issue, they announced that the book was canceled, so I never quite got the chance to hit the rhythm that I wanted with the book. And then the last few issues were spent, they asked me to wrap up old plot lines from before my, my run, but I still had a great time. And Mark Buckingham, the artist, what a great artist for Doctor Strange. He did a beautiful job. But I, I always felt a little frustrated by that. I would, that's a character I would return to. Yeah, yeah I really enjoyed because Buckingham, I believe, came on at some point prior to around the time Warren Ellis was doing the book. So he got a little bit more time to find his groove, and I thought he was doing a great job. And you got stuck having to wrap up the Darkhold story arcs. Right, right, which I had, you know, until they told me about it, I would never even aware of it, you know. So you go back and you reread the stories, and you try to come up with the best conclusion you can. Yeah, but I, I, I got to do that Baron Mordo story that I really yeah. wanted to do, and toyed with the origin a little bit and it was fun it was a lot of fun I love that character I did back in the 80s I did a Doctor Strange graphic novel with Dan Green called 
into Shambhala, which I think is one of the best things I did for Marvel. But it's, I have a real passion for that character. He's a very good medium for your, your writing. It just seems to work very well. Yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I like the mystical characters. They give you a chance to get philosophical and metaphysical, and those are the things that I really, really care about. Plus, Doctor Strange, as a character, has such a great backstory. He has one of the best backstories in comics. You know, the whole arrogant surgeon who gets broken to bits and then, you know, finds his hope through the spiritual master and then has his life remade. It's a fantastic story, which is why I think it's going to be a great movie. What you hear before the movie happens is often very different than what happens when the movie comes out. So I really hope that they do the origin because that's not a character you want to jump into when he's already Doctor Strange because the reason you relate to him is because you know who he was before and what he went through. So I hope that they really do explore the origin because it's one of the best in comics ever. When you came out of the book, the title was always known for being a little bit weird, you know, out for the gun, that sort of thing. But you really seem to push it more towards mysticism and sorcery, even Satanism. So that was a deliberate move on your part or was it something that just was a natural manifestation of your interests? I don't know about Satanism, but because uh, that's not anything that interests me. In fact, I really don't like stories that involve Satan and hell and all that stuff. It's not. A, I'm not a big fan of that. But um, the mystical side of life, the philosophical side of life, um, that whole Eastern uh, Eastern world that Doctor Strange explores—that's that's very uh, very much a part of my life. It's very important to me, and so I love stories that allow me a chance to explore that. Because, and plus, when you get into the mystical characters, I just I just spent like I don't know a year and a half, two years writing Justice League Dark for DC, and it's the same thing with those DC characters. You, you, the supernatural characters really allow you a window and a door into those worlds, and you can you, the, the stories take on a whole other level and a whole other uh, element and a whole other dimension to them because you can they become metaphors for all these spiritual issues in our own lives and explorations of who am I? What, what who am I really? What is our personal identity? What is our cosmic identity? What is reality? All those big questions, which really are the fundamental questions of life that sometimes we're afraid to ask ourselves, but for me, they're the fundamental questions. So these characters like Doctor Strange or Doctor Fate or the Justice League Dark characters are a great doorway into that for me. I love those kind of stories. The book became something of a home for supernatural characters during your run. You had Ghost Rider show up, Son of Satan, just a Devil Slayer. That, yeah, that's what I was... For a second, now I know where you're talking about the Satan thing, because I thought you were still talking about Doctor Strange. Right. Okay, all right, now we can. Now I'm clear on what we're talking about. Well, see, I love Doctor Strange, but I didn't do the research on him, so I'm like, oh, if you want to talk about Doctor Strange, go to town. To the Defenders. But the same answer applies, you know? And, and the, the fun, the, although we did use the figure of Satan in the Defenders, so now I sound like I'm completely contradicting myself, <laughs> but we used it to explore that whole idea in a very different way. One of the, my favorite stories from that Defenders run was where Damon Hellstrom, who is the son of Satan, is trapped in hell again, and his father reveals his other face to him, which is the face of God. That so-called good and so-called evil are part of a continuum, and that we also established that that Satan in the Marvel Universe was not the biblical Satan. That the idea of that there even is a Satan is a projection of the collective unconscious of humankind. You know, that we, we've we created that level of evil. It's not, God didn't create that evil in the world. You know what I mean? It's there because people project it out there. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy into the traditional idea of there's like an evil guy with horns tempting us into the fires of hell. I believe that in the end we live in a very benevolent universe with a very benevolent God who's leading us higher and higher to something good. 
So that story, I'm glad, I'm glad we clarify yeah. <laughs> that. That story allowed me to explore that concept and play with it and kind of turn it on its head. In fact, that issue with the son of Satan where, where, where uh, his father reveals that he's also God was, was one of my favorite issues of the Defenders. Wow, I'm glad we cleared that up. I was so confused. <laughs> yeah. And you also touched on it again. One of the things I liked about the use of Satan in that story was he's such a cartoonish figure. You really can't take him seriously as depicted by Don Perlin because it's such a classic, almost like a comedic version of the character. But you also, in the Patsy Walker story, where she's looking into her parentage, right. you really get into that. You, you kind of explained that that was the intention, that I'm not really this evil guy. I'm here to kind of lead you to a place to realize yourself. Right. You know, Jim Shooter, who was editor-in-chief of the time said could we just get a line in there about the fact that that satan is not the satan and rather than just throwing a line i used it as an excuse to really do an exploration of that question they'd had that whole merry-go-round ride together where they basically had this long philosophical discussion while they were going around this satanic merry-go-round yeah so that was a great opportunity those care i love those characters i i that was my my first book as a comic book writer where i really got to invest it with myself. I was still finding my way as a writer. I can look back at some of those stories and go, oh my God, that phrase is terrible or that the language is clunky. But I, I really poured my heart and soul into that book. And I couldn't have done the things that I did later, the more personal projects, the creator-owned projects, had I not had a chance on Defenders to really explore and play and break some boundaries. Which is great because that was always the tradition of that book. And Steve Gerber is really the guy that really established that. If you're going to write the Defenders... Find where the boundaries are, find where the walls are, and start knocking them down. You know? Immediately prior to your run, Ed Hennigan was writing the book. But David Anthony Kraft came back for that one issue to kill off Patsy Walker's mother. And that seemed like it was a sort of a fulcrum for a lot of the work you did with Patsy Walker on that series. David Anthony Kraft, though, was known for having her be sort of a bouncy, light character, where you took her down some darker roads and fleshed her out some. Was that a conscious choice, or was that just a natural inclination of your writing? Well, both. You know, it, it is was the natural inclination, but also because I, when I came in, we took the defenders in this realm of a, of, of a supernatural team, which it hadn't been before, so that opened the door on that. I realized, you know, years later, working on Justice League Dark, that in a lot of ways, Defenders was my rehearsal for doing Justice League Dark, because it really, they're very similar in their premise, you know? Um, so, I'm also obsessed with parent-child relationships, and how people are, everyone's always going through life, working out their issues with their mother or their father. So for me, it was a very natural thing to get into Patsy's relationship with her mother. And then when she found out that her mother had sold her out mm-hmm. to the six-fingered hand, it was, you know, we're always wrestling with our parents in some form, you know? And it was a great doorway. And same thing with Damon Helstrom. It's the ultimate daddy issue, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to be a good person, and my father is the lord of hell. That's a rough one to have to deal with, you know? But he, he was a great character also. I love the characters that have that duality of soul that they have that incredible darkness in them but they also are struggling toward the light and they have to wrestle with that you know some characters are inherently good and no matter what they may go through they have that inherent goodness and others like Damon Hellstrom you know at any given point he could go right off the edge and become that other thing and so you really you get very invested in his redemption and hope hope that he can make it through and find the light that actually connects with me personally because uh, one of my favorite superheroes is Captain America. And I came in during your run. For three years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Captain America is a guy who's very stable. He's got that moral center. Captain America was a father figure to me. And between you, your work with Mike Zeck and with Gary Gamble on, on like Mr. Uh, Marvel Fanfare, Marvel Team Up, that character was a father figure to me and helped to keep me on the straight and narrow as well. So it's funny that it kind of came full circle with some of the stuff you were talking about just now. That's great. Well, that, and Captain America is a very, very different thing because he is 
He is an inherently good and decent man. And the trick is when you write those characters is to keep that always in mind but make them interesting. And Roger Stern, who came before me on the book, um, was wise enough to ground him with a nice supporting cast that he started. And I, got, I was able to take that and develop it. He had the relationship with Bernie. I got to take that and develop it um, and make him, uh, thanks to the groundwork that Roger did, make him more human so that he's not just... Because the worst thing that could happen with Captain America is that he's just a symbol. And if a character is just a symbol, they're not a human being. So you have to find that, that humanity in the character... And and I, I and he was one of those characters where I really came to fall in love with the character as I was writing him. I always liked Captain America, great character, you know, iconic character. Loved, you know, the Jack Kirby and all that's what Stan did. And I read it over the years. But when I actually sat down to write the character was when I really connected and came to love the character. I'm Mr. Pixie. This is my consigliere, Diablo Frank. The line is Cagliostro. Same difference. Bond is one of the most successful comics properties of all time. The best-selling book, animated series, toy lines, that stinky movie, all the lawsuits over who's got what rights. Don't be a comedian. We got business to handle. We're here to pimp our new show, Spawn Talk. About Todd McFarlane's cursed anti-hero and his fight against all the forces of heaven and hell. In a doomed quest to be reunited with his beloved wife, Wanda. Uh, no, the show's called Spawnometer, named after the countdown clock on Al Simmons' Hell Spawn, Supernatural Power, and Undead Lifespan. Yeah, yeah, whatever. And the gimmick is we cover one issue of the comic per episode in 22 minutes or less. One minute for each page the comic runs. Then we'll briefly look at another Image Comics creator or series in roughly chronological order, reflecting a quarter century of creators' rights opportunities at the greatest publisher in the industry. Then we'll dump a letter section and some ads in the back of the show, just like Image Comics does. New shows will appear on Roach Fine Podcast Feed through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Shot Engine, and the Internet Archives. Uh, until we immediately start blowing our deadlines, just like an Image Comic. Shut up! Why you gotta be a wise guy? This is why you got no friends. Did you read any Patsy Walker stories? Like, she had a, a fairly long-running pair of series before she became the Hellcat character. Did you read any of that stuff? No, because growing up, I was re- reading the superhero stuff. I, I was aware that it was there. I remember seeing it on the rack, Patsy Walker. Mm-hmm. But I didn't become aware of her until, I think it was Steve Englehart that brought her in to the mm-hmm. Avengers as a character. So that was my familiarity with that character was through that. And, the, you know, the love affair between Patsy Walker and Damon Hellstrom I think worked because they were so different because even with what she'd been through at heart she was that same Patsy Walker and the last person you think she's going to end up with is the son of Satan you know so that romance was a great thing to play with and a great thing to write and I noticed you jumped right into that as soon as he showed up you started that romance where previously they'd been playing around with a Hellcat Nighthawk romance but you seem to have your own ideas of what to do with Nighthawk because he seemed to be somebody who needed to be challenged to get him out of his rich boy rut I guess you could say well you know what's interesting and and I did a panel yesterday and, and, and we talked at length about this when the stories are really working I'm not making the, that decision the characters are making that decision what happens a lot of the times is you get the characters on the page and they start interacting and there are relationships there that I would have never thought of but suddenly say Patsy Walker and Damon Hellstrom are in the same scene and you sense that there's a spark between them I didn't know there was going to be a spark between them until I start writing the dialogue uh, someone was asking me you know, about my Justice League run with Keith Giffen same thing with Beetle and Booster you know, did you set out to create this, this great friendship with Beetle and Booster? No they created it and we followed it same thing with Damon and Patsy. It was like, oh, okay, these two 
there's something between these two. I better explore this and see where it leads. Mm-hmm. When you introduced the gargoyle, was he intended to be an ongoing character, or is that what, another one of those situations where he gained a life of his own? Well, you know, I think I, I didn't really know where it was going to go until I wrote that first story that he was in. And then was kind of once he hit the page, it was like, okay, he belong- he was, it would be, he would, he, I could see that he would be a great addition to the group. And plus, and I didn't really think about it that much, but I don't think anyone had ever done a character that was like an 80-year-old man who was like a, a, a main superhero figure, you know? So that made him very interesting, that this is this guy who had, had this long, interesting life. And in fact, I did a Gargoyle miniseries with Mark Badger that is one of, still one of my favorite things that I ever did for Marvel that really got to explore his life and his backstory. And uh, I love that character. I, well, that's another character I would go back to and write because he's really interesting. He was unusual then, but now there's this sense they're trying to become more diverse in comics, but at the same time there's a greater homogeneity because everybody's lean, everybody's young, everybody's sexy, and you don't have that diversity of character types anymore. Right, that's true, that's true. And again, I wasn't consciously trying to be diverse by having an old man uh, be the character. It's just, as a writer, it was like, oh, that's interesting. And then the more you write him, the more interesting you realize that he is. And then next thing you know, he's part of the team, and he's a very valuable part of the team. You don't get, to to my mind anyway, you don't get the recognition for your role in the uh, increasing sophistication of comics beginning in the 80s. You did have a hand in Grim and Gritty as well. But you explored some really mature themes at early years. The Gargoyle character attempted suicide in one of your issues. You introduced Cloud, which is possibly one of the first transgendered characters in comic book history. Credit where credit's due. I think it was Peter Gillis who came after me that really explored the transgender thing with Cloud. So I have to give him the credit for that one. I'll take credit for the stuff I did, but not for the stuff I didn't do. But but you also introduced, in the Captain America run, he had a a homosexual friend that he had known from back in the war. So I just wanted to point that out while I had the opportunity, while I had the soapbox, that I really wish you got more recognition for helping to elevate comic books and their their maturity and their willingness to approach those kind of themes. Thank you. You know, uh, we also did a story in Spider-Man in the early 90s called The Child Within, which I think was one of the first major Marvel stories to ever deal with child sexual abuse. Uh, Um... But the same thing, it's like when those things happen, it's not because you set out to go, oh, I want to give Captain America a gay best friend. I just had the idea that, oh, it would really be cool, because now this was the 80s, so World War II was was maybe 40 years before, as opposed to now, where, like, you know, if you're going to have someone from World War II, they're really old. They could, he could still be a reasonably young man, you know? Uh, wouldn't it be interesting if Cap met somebody who knew him when he was a kid, and if he was the guy who was Cap's protector growing up? In fact... In the Captain America movie, the character of Bucky, what they did with him is really what, what Arnie Roth was to Cap. They built on Arnie Roth and turned him into Bucky. And I didn't set out to go, oh, I'm going to go give him a gay friend. It just, as I started writing it, it became apparent that that's what it was. So it becomes a surprise to me. So I wasn't on a, I wasn't on a soapbox going, I'm going to write a story about a gay guy and blah, 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 blah. And, and it also made sense for me for that character Here's Captain America. He represents America. He represents all of us. His girlfriend is Jewish. His best friend is a black guy, the Falcon. And so why wouldn't he have a gay friend? And it becomes this all-inclusive thing that really represents all of us, you know? Whether I was doing that consciously, I don't think so. I think it was just intuitive on my part. But it worked, and Arnie was a great character. And looking back, 
I'm glad that I that I was the guy who got to do that and put that character out there. Well, it's great too because, as you said, it's not ham-fisted. It's just a natural progression. Right. Right. Well, I wasn't. No, I wasn't waving any flags. You and Keith Giffen and Kevin McGuire did a Defenders miniseries a number of years ago. I thought it was fantastic. Do you all have any interest in continuing that at the time? You know, we talked about it, and I don't really remember exactly what happened and why we didn't do another one because I know we we talked about it. And then, for whatever reason, we never did. I don't know whether we got on to another project at D.C. or, or what happened. We had a really great time working on The Defenders. I mean, it was really, it was really fun. And we got to take, kind of apply our insane uh, D.C. Justice League mindset to the Marvel Universe. I don't know how, how hardcore Marvel fans felt about it, because it was pretty funny. But it was also a very serious story underneath that. And that's a lot of what we like to do also. It's like, it's not so much that the story is funny is that the characters have a sense of humor. Who decided to take the Defenders and turn them into the new Defenders? Someone asked me about that the other day. They were like, did they force you to do that and that's why you left the book? No, I, it was the same thing that we're talking about. I had introduced some of the X-Men characters into the book because when I was a kid, I loved the original Lee Kirby X-Men, that group of characters. And uh, so I thought, well, we have the Beast already. Let's bring in Iceman. Let's bring in the Angel. And once they came into the book... It kind of solidified and started feeling more like a regular team. So it was my idea to do the new Defenders. The joke was, once I did it, I realized, uh-oh, I've now turned this into exactly the kind of book that I don't like to write, which is a standard team book. Peter Gillis, to his credit, kept it pretty weird, too, which was good because of the tradition of the book. But then I went, oh, you know, now that I've done this, I don't really want to write this book anymore, and that's why I left. So I basically wrote myself out of the job. <laughs> Part of creating the new Defenders was writing out Damon and Patsy. Was the wedding just, again, a natural progression, an evolution of what you'd already been doing? Or was it a sense of, well, these guys got to get out of this book for now because they don't fit anymore? I think it was a little above, but the, the, the relationship was natural. The wedding was natural, and it ended up being a great exit for them, you know? And I also loved, you know, when I was a kid reading the, the, the wedding of Reed and Sue, when these characters get married, it's always a big deal and a fun thing. And there's always something weird that happens in some big battle that happens in the middle of it so it was also a chance to do one of those classic superhero wedding stories you know but yeah they 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 didn't fit in that book anymore and it was a perfect door out for them but it was the natural progression of the relationship that led to that both characters kind of went into limbo in the 80s i'm sure that some of it was just the political climate wasn't there for them to stick around anymore particularly in the case of damon hellstrom but you actually made a point of revisiting hellcat it later in the 80s did you feel like maybe you needed to spend a little more time with it since nobody else was at that point in time no i think it was an avengers spotlight book i think is that what it was Mm -hmm. and so they asked me if i wanted to do something and because i had i still had that attachment to that character I thought it would be a fun thing to do. So it was really nice to revisit her, if only for whatever was an 11-page story. And also to play with that uh, relationship with her ex-husband, that we, who we turned into that villain mad dog mm-hmm. along the way, yeah. Yeah, I was going to congratulate you on that, because I liked how it works as a superhero story, but it also works as a metaphor for those kind of relationships. I liked how you addressed that as much hatred as there was between those two characters, there was obviously initially a love there, or they never would have gotten married in the first place. Right, and, and, that's, you know, that, and that happens to people all the time. They get married, they have an ugly divorce, they, quote, hate each other, but they'll always love each other. And that's what makes for great stories. That's, you know, in a very different way when I was writing uh, Spectacular Spider-Man, the Peter Parker-Harry Osborn relationship worked for just the same reason. Harry was the goblin, they were absolute enemies, but they were still best friends. And underneath it all, they still loved each other. And that's what makes for great drama and great psychological tension and for great stories. 
at that panel yesterday, th- there were some great stories about people crying over the death of Aunt May, but I also think that the death of Harry Osborne was very effective as well. Yes, and, and that was also people asking, well, did you have that plan from the beginning? Not at all. It was just what happened, and then suddenly I find myself in the middle of this scene, and the building's going to blow, and, and that's when Harry comes through and saves Peter, and then the serum kicks in, and he dies. And I have, to, I have to say about that scene, because it's one of my favorite scenes in all the Spider-Man In fact, it's probably my favorite single issue of any Spider-Man story I've ever done. When I wrote the plot, and we work what's called Marvel-style plot first, so I write a very detailed plot. It goes off to the artist. So in my mind, I'm thinking the last few pages, they're in the ambulance. Harry's dying. He takes Peter's hand. He dies. It's very dramatic. I'm going to write a lot. I'm going to really fill that up, schmaltz it up, you know, and be very dramatic. And then I got the pages back from Sal Buscema. And the way he drew it, everything that I wanted to say was in the artwork. So I could just shut up. And we had, I think, three pages at the end with not a word on it because it was all there. And that's one another reason why I really love that story. And it speaks to what a really great collaboration between a writer and artist can do. He picked up everything in my plot that needed to be there, and he put it in the artwork, and I didn't have to say a word. Yeah, I don't think that Sabushima gets enough credit for that. He's such a great art actor where you can see the emotions on the characters' faces. And it was one of those collaborations. uh, We may have been talking about this on the panel yesterday. Um, You can have a great story and great art, but if there's not that chemical crackle between the writer and the artist... The story just won't work. And with Sal, from the first page, the first panel practically, something connected for us. And it was not because we knew each other or knew each other well or had talked, because we really hadn't talked before the first issue. It's just there was a connection between my story and, and his art and what he wanted to draw and what he responded to in my story, what I responded to in his art. And it was such, we had such a great time working on that book for two years. I, I have so much respect for Sal. And talk about someone who doesn't get the credit he deserves one of the great superhero artists ever ever absolutely absolutely agree justice league international blah ha ha podcast a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the jli era by keith giffen and jm dematteis will be going issue by issue in release order tackling the core justice league title justice league europe and the quarterly book along the way we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs cartoon appearances the infamous tv pilot and much more So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Atom. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? You took over JLA with issue 255. You scripted under the pseudonym Michael Ellis. Coming onto the book, did you already know it was getting canceled? Yeah, uh, they. Jerry Conway had left the book, and Andy Helfer, who I have to say is one of the best editors to sit behind a desk at any comic book company anywhere at any time, um, asked me to come on and finish off whatever story Jerry was doing and then finish off the run and uh, you know I got my directive you know kill some characters and <laughs> so so those who think I set out to kill vibe or whatever no, it was it was basically a directive to knock off some to really shake it up and really end 
that Justice League, Justice League to clear the deck for whatever they were doing next. And when I was writing that, I didn't know I was going to be one of the guys doing it next. I had no clue. I was just there to uh, to write them. So, um, yeah, so uh, I, I got to finish that off. And it was actually, it was a fun run. It was We had a good time with it. Did Helper ask you specifically, take out this character, this character? You know, I, I can't swear to it because it's been a long time. My feeling is that I think there were, it was, you can knock off this one or knock off that one, leave that one alone and whatever. But, I, I, you know, I, it's been so long, I can't, maybe Andy would say, no, no, I didn't say that, it was your idea. So I don't know, but I, but I know that they wanted to kill some of them off, you know. Vixen was put out to pasture with the other heroes, but she was pretty quickly snapped up by Suicide Squad. Did you ever want to use her in Justice League, or were you just happy that she found a home after she was gone? Yeah, I, I have to say, um, I only wrote that character for those few issues, so I never got to really get to know her or sink my teeth into her. And, you know, even when you kill off these characters, you know 99% of the time they'll be back in some shape or form. And I'm sure they all have come back in some shape or form. Vibes on a TV show now, for goodness sake. Right, 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 exactly. And and Steel, I'm sure Steel came back. I mean, he's basically, he was like a robot, so they could always find some way to put him back together. They just found a cousin. What, what? They found a cousin. Is that what it was? They found a cousin? Okay, well, there, there, that's what worked. Did somebody give you marching orders on Zatanna leaving the Justice League as well? Oh, Zatanna, well, I'm trying to think. Zatanna, oh, Zatanna was already, oh, Justice League. Wait, Zatanna? Yeah, you had Justice League. Justice League. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, sorry. Cause I'm, I'm thinking about Justice League Dark, and I'm running through my Zatanna stories over there. We're talking about Justice League. Uh, in terms of uh, when we relaunched, I think when we relaunched with 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 uh, uh, with the the Giffen Dimitrius Justice League, I think we were we were given a list of characters that we could basically use. You know, we couldn't have the big guns, and we couldn't have this one. And I don't know where Zatanna was at the time or what she was doing. I think Keith and Andy were the ones that finally, based on what they were told they could use, it came up with the first, the first roster of characters. So Zatanna just wasn't included. I don't know if it was a conscious decision or what happened. But I got to write Zatanna all those years later, finally, in Justice League Dark, and the same exact thing happened. Really really didn't had never really thought about her and in fact I completely forgotten that I had written her already in that other Justice League story and she was out of Justice League Dark for the first number of issues that I wrote and she came into the book and I was like what a great character I love her I understand her but until I wrote her in that storyline I didn't really get it you know so it was really fun to discover the character that way but really in terms of our our Justice League run they were told right off the bat you can't have any of the big guns they gave us Batman and that was about it. You know, there was no Superman, there was no Wonder Woman, there was no... F- we eventually got Wally West in there later, you know? So, but that was, that was to our benefit. Because by getting these, and I'll put it in quotes, second-string characters that people didn't really care about, we got to make them their, our own. And we got to play with them in a way they'd never let us play with um, Superman. And, you, you know, we could do anything we wanted with Blue Beetle and Booster Gold and Fire and Ice and these other characters... And so we got to make them their own. And as a result of that, all these years later, those characters are still hugely popular and have a life of their own. And we're happy that we have uh, Weedle and Booster and Fire and Ice back 
in Justice League 3001 that we're doing now. You had some fairly decent-sized big guns when you started Justice League. Then there was a negative reaction to the, the funny book, and it seemed like they wanted to take some of those characters from you. In particular, Captain Marvel, I believe, Roy Thomas wanted to get out of that book so he could do his own version. I never knew why we couldn't use Captain Marvel. I didn't know whether... I, thought, I always thought it was some legal thing because they were still licensing, licensing the yeah. character, and I, I thought that they could only have it for X number of months before they had to go back. Uh, if, it, if it was somebody else wanted it for something, I, I never found that out. The great thing about Andy as an editor was, I think he was fighting battles behind the scenes over that book constantly. He never came to us and dumped that on us and said, oh, you know, this guy said that, or they don't want you to use that character. He left us alone to create and do our thing, and he protected us, which is what the best editors will do. When Batman left the book... Manhunter's role seemed to be elevated, and he seemed to become the straight man. Was that just natural uh, evolution? Absolutely natural. You know, I mean, Batman was a straight man as well, but he was so straight that it was... I knew that Batman was having a good time. Underneath all his growly stuff, I knew that he got a kick out of these guys because he needed that lightness in his life. But we could never really push it too far. Once in a while, he would say something, and people would go, wait, wait, did he just make a joke? Did Batman make a joke, you know? Uh, with 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 John, it was it was more on the surface. You know, he was exasperated, but he was delighted, and we knew that both things were true. And he would lose his mind, and I've got to go to my room and meditate, and eat a cookie for a while. You know, but uh, he was such a great character, and he was the perfect straight man for that team. You know. In the first Justice League annual, it seemed like that was a much more overt setup for the Martian Manhunter miniseries. Was that something that you were already planning because you created the sentient virus, and at the end it was contained within John Jones? Did you know that you were going to come back to that story at the time? It might have... I don't think that I knew that I was going to come back to it, but I think it might have been what inspired me and gave me the idea that this is a great door in to explore the character. You know, Keith put that in the plot, and I don't think when, when, I, was, when I was scripting that issue, I was thinking, oh, I'll use this as a way to, uh, to launch this miniseries. But as it went along, it became a perfect vehicle to have him in this state. I mean, what a sacrifice he made to take that thing inside him, and then how do you live with this virus? And that's a great door into the character's psyches, and I'm always looking for new doors into the character's heads, and that was a perfect one. But I don't think when we were doing that story... I thought, ah, I'll use this for the miniseries. But when it was over, it was like, oh, yeah, that's a great way to, to explore this character. Well, one of the things I like about the character is that despite being extraordinarily powerful, he's also so extraordinarily vulnerable. So you have that duality. You talked about these great extremes. Right. And he's not someone, you know, a lot of these powerful characters are like, I am the powerful character. And that's not his personality at all. He's really at core a very gentle guy, you know, uh, very soft and very sweet even though he puts on this exterior, because you have to to keep Beetle and Booster in line, you know? So, and that's what I like about him. He may be the single most powerful character of all the DC superheroes. When you think about everything he can do, he can do almost anything, you know? He doesn't need the Justice League. He can do it all himself, you know? But he, he has a sweetness to him as well, which is one of the things I connected with in the character. During the Millennium Crossover, was anybody trying to draw Martian Manhunter into that whole Manhunter cult action? Or are you all able to steer clear of that and just give them Rocket Red instead? I'll give you the completely honest answer. I don't remember anything about it. (laughs) (laughs) Millennium, I don't think I remember. Was the Millennium the one where we introduced Nort? I want to say yes. I'm not 100% on that, though. But that's when you had had the Green Lanterns around. It would make sense for that to have happened. On some backwater planet, Nort came up out of the sewer. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Oh, no, it was the Manga Khan story arc, wasn't it? No, I don't think so. Wasn't he? No, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else, but he was in that vicinity. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you know whatever happened to Blue Beetle Volume 3? Because my understanding was that one they were going to end the Lin Wein series that was on the newsstand and then started a direct market version with the same creative team. And uh, reading in Amazing Heroes, there was talk of actually taking Blue Beetle out of the Justice League for a period of time. Did you ever catch wind of that? Never heard a word about it. That might have been Andy Helfer fighting another battle force and saying there's no way you're taking this character out of this book, <laughs> yeah. you know? In uh, JLI number 22, you wrote a line. It was during the uh, Invasion story arc, and Wonder Woman was guest starring. They were destroying kind of spaceships. Wonder Woman expressed her dismay at all the death and destruction that was happening. And John Jones says, why must we always take such pleasure in the combat, in the fighting? That was almost immediately prior to the miniseries. Were you trying to contrast the warrior incarnation of Martian Manhunter versus the character that was going to come out at the end of that miniseries? The more genteel, the more introspective character. Again, that wasn't a conscious thing, um, but that comment is true to that character. And it's also really true to uh, superhero stories in general. You know, I mean, it's, it, 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 that one little comment is a big comment on the whole genre because it's true. We take great pleasure in the battles and the fights and the explosions and the deaths, you know. And now that these things have been transferred to the movie screen, they're even more intense and, 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 and more violent and crazier. And I find, for me personally, when I see it on, on a movie screen, as much as I, I've loved so many of these movies, it's hard to take some of the, the unrelenting violence and explosions. And you, I, you watch these movies, and I'm always thinking about the collateral damage and how many civilians are dead here. And in you know, comics, uh, you get away with it a little bit more. It doesn't feel quite that in your face and that real but that that comment I think is a perfect comment from Jean perfectly reflective of his character but not something that I was doing consciously to contrast with what was to come have you seen Avengers 2 yet? I haven't I will see it but I'm not I don't necessarily run the first weekend and fight the crowds you know I wait a little while, I'm done, and then I will go see it. Yeah. One of the things I found very enjoyable about that movie was that they take the time to show the heroes saving lives to, to a much greater extent than pretty much any other superhero movie I can think of. Them doing everything they can to actually protect humans and be heroes. So just a little recommendation. Well, I'm glad that they did that. It's, yeah. it's important because, you know, you, you watch these things, and there goes like five buildings go down. You know, they're all dead. They're all dead, and, you know... Oh, the heroes won the day. Well, what about those, like, millions of people that went down in all those buildings and all those people that had all this stuff dropped on their heads, you know? And I actually wrote a whole... I did a mini-series for uh, IDW 2009 called The Life and Times of Savior 28, which really took all of my reservations about the superhero genre, which I love or I couldn't have done it all these years, but underneath it all, I'm always going, I'm still uncomfortable with the violence. I'm still uncomfortable with, with the whole mentality that says... We can solve problems by dropping buildings on each other's heads, you know? And that series allowed me to really wrestle with those questions in a public forum. And I'm very, one of the best things I've ever done, I think, and I'm very proud of that series. Well, it's another one that kind of flew under the radar. A lot of people don't know it exists. But if you're out there and you're a fan of my work, please read that one because it's very important to me. Well, especially if you're a Captain America fan, since it took a lot of the stuff that you were going to do with the book and didn't get to. And I guess it, it benefited from percolating for a couple more decades. Right. Although I sometimes think, God, if I had gotten away with doing yes. that story, because for those that don't know, I had pitched that after Captain America 300, is that was where Captain America was going to go into this huge storyline where he disavowed violence and it really became an exploration of these questions. And, uh, and then the powers that be said, sorry, we're not going to let you do that. And I literally wrote and played with and rewrote that story for 25 years. <laughs> the joke is, 
when I finally found uh, this artist, uh, my friend Mike Cavallero, and we pitched it to IDW. After 25 years, it was approved the same day we pitched it. That has never happened to me before since, to have an approval the same day. Especially because I'm in New York and they're in California. Time difference, everything. Mm -hmm. Same day. Yes, let's do it. Let's go. Awesome, awesome. What was the motivation behind so radically changing Martian Manhunter's origins? You know, the 80s was a time where they they, they wanted reinvention. They wanted things to be fresh and new. Um, And... But again, you don't change something just to change it. You change it because it's an outgrowth of the character. And I just thought... Well, let's think about this character. Let's think about it. For one thing I played with was the fact that, well, he couldn't have possibly have come from Mars now and come from a civilization because we know too much about Mars now. So the idea that he was pulled through time as well as space, uh, the idea that he had assumed, as we talked about, this body to help him get around. If he's going to be a superhero and he's going to be known as a Martian, well, let me look like something familiar from a 50s movie, which is what he looked like. He was a 1950s character. So all these things on all these changes, uh, the idea that Dr. Ertl was the one that uh, programmed him and put these memories in there to help him survive. For me, it's always about what's going to be interesting for the character. What's going to be, what's going to explain these little pockets in the character's history that maybe seem a little off, you know? And how will that make it a richer and more psychologically interesting character? So that was my approach with him. And he's such a rich character, you know? And I know that John Ostrander went on and did lots of really fascinating things with him. Were Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles or Richard Matheson's I Am Legend influential in the writing of that series? Um, I don't know if... I'm, I'm, I'm... one of the world's biggest Bradbury fans. I worship at the altar of Ray Bradbury. I mean, he... I can't think... There are a couple of writers I love as much. There's nobody I love more. And I can't think of another writer who has inspired me more than... I read a Bradbury book, and I want to go write immediately because he just sets my soul on fire, you know? So I'm sure it wasn't on some unconscious way. If you're writing about Mars, certainly the poetry of that story and that story was very poetic probably came but I write poetically anyway but one of the reasons I write poetically probably is because I read Bradbury you know so but that's why when I got to the end because I had done this poetic story about Mars I had to dedicate that story to him because he really is in my literary pantheon one of the the god of gods in there you know I love his work and I return to it again and again and reread it and it always inspires me was I Am Legend in any way an influence though because it seemed like you got the, the singularly uh, a soul survivor a plague ridden planet uh, he introduced his wife and daughter in that story so not at all not at all I hadn't at that point I hadn't read I, I still have, I've never read I Am Legend great story I, I like Matheson and I'm a big Twilight Zone fan so I love Matheson for that reason uh, I've read some of his novels and things but I've never read I Am Legend I don't think I'd ever seen any movie version, so if anything that's similar is completely coincidental. It's never been adequately adapted. They always change the story so thoroughly that it's virtually unrecognizable. So even the Will Smith version? Uh, no, no. Yeah. Completely different, yes. They've yet to adapt that adequately. I highly recommend it. Well, maybe I'll get around to reading it one of these days. Did you ever have plans to revisit Saul Ardell and just it never seemed to happen? I know he was referenced toward the end of the JLI run, but he never popped up again after the Marshman miniseries. You know, I did a story... And I think it was supposed to run in... Remember, we had Justice League International Quarterly. It was a gigantic book. It was like 80 pages four times a year. I did a story that, for whatever reason, never saw print. And it was a Martian Manhunter solo story. And it had to do... It's a great story. Maybe I'll get to rewrite it. 
um, <laughs> he, he encounters a woman that he becomes convinced is the re- human woman who's the reincarnation of his Martian wife. But if I'm remembering cor- cor- correctly, Dr. Erdel, Erdel or Erdel, I've never said it out loud before. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe it's Erdel. It sounds better that way. Um, was in that story. I know he was in that story. But uh, I think what might have happened is we were working on that toward the end of our run, and it was in, in the drawer to, to go into Justice League Quarterly, and it just never saw print. There was another story I did. It was a Guy Gardner um, General Glory story. Uh, Trevor Von Eden drew it. It was a really fun story, and I don't think it ever saw print. So there's a couple of stories that may be still up in drawers at D.C. Uh, it seemed like Justice League Quarterly tried to radically re- uh, reinvent itself when you guys left the book. And maybe that's why those stories never saw print, you know, because uh, I, I remember them both. And I, that Martian Man, it's because I love that character so much, and it was a really fascinating story to have him obsessed with this woman who didn't know him, and he was convinced that she was the reincarnation of his wife. That's, I'm, I'm happy to have talked to you just so that I could find out that nugget. I've never heard that anywhere else. Did you enjoy Mark Verhayden's Secret Origin story? Because it seemed like a lot of people's favorite Martian Manhunter stories is The Man I Never Was from one of the Justice League annuals. And you seem to pick up from where they left off with the Secret Origins and play out how changed the Martian Manhunter character was. I'm just curious how you responded to that Secret Origin story, though. The, the, Bar- the Mark Verhayden story? Yeah. I, I never read it. Because the, the man I never was uh, picks up from the cop character who's introduced there, and it, really? Manhunter's trying to investigate his death. Oh, that's it. See, I, here's, the, here's the thing. When Keith and I work together, mm-hmm. Keith creates the plot. Mm-hmm. I then, you know, write all this stuff on top of that. So I had no clue. To this day, you've yeah. just enlightened me. I had no clue. I'm almost, I could 99, 90% positive I had no clue that that story was based on anything that came before. Well, I mean, part of the point of the story is it's not about a murder mystery. It's about Marsh Manhunter having kind of progressed past being a superhero at this point. Right. And I probably thought it was referencing something from some old story from 15, 20 years before, you know? And I remember really liking that story because that's the fun of my collaboration with Keith. He lays down this really amazing, solid plot, and then he gives me the room to sometimes write a whole other story on top of that. So I really got to play with the character and his psychology in there. And I had no idea it was referencing another story, so thank you for enlightening me. Was there any initiative to try to bring in classic Justice League villains? Because you guys touched on Starro, Professor Ivo, Queen Bee, Despero. Um, and I know that there was a tendency to discard a lot of the Silver Age characters at that point in time. Did you guys make a point to try to bring them in and, and reevaluate them and come up with a new way of approaching them during your run? You know, um... I don't know if it was a... Con- Again, I keep giving the same answer. I don't know if it was a conscious decision any more than Keith going, hey, let's bring back uh, in Despero. And uh, people seem to love that Despero story. And the joke of that story is because it was, for us, as grim a Justice League story as we've ever done. When I was writing that one, I was sort of like... Half of my brain was writing it seriously... And half of my brain was satirizing the grim and gritty characters, uh, stories of the day, including my own Craven's Last Hunt. Because if you read Despero's captions, it's very much, I am Despero, I am Death, I am Fire. It's just like, I am Craven, I am. So I was kind of goofing on myself a little bit. Uh, but people loved that story. And we also had, if I recall, that was an Adam Hughes story, right? Right. Adam Hughes did a beautiful job with that story. He was, we were very lucky. We had some great artists on that book. And Adam was one of the best. Yeah, yeah I caught that satire, but Hughes was so good at realizing it that you, it would be easy for somebody to miss that element of it. Yeah, yeah. and then again, we got that nice Martian Manhunter moment at the end where he used that, that whatever name we gave to it. The Mayavana. Thank you. Uh, 
to to allow Despero to think he'd won. And again, this great sacrifice because it was only something he could do once in his lifetime. So again, just like the thing with the virus, wow, the more we talk about him, what a great character. I have to write him again. <laughs> DC, if you're out there, I need to write that character again. Well, you mentioned, too, you're trying to dial down the grim and gritty. Ultimately, that story is about the gift of love yeah. solving the, the, all the problems. Yeah, very, very much so. Very much so. And that, that element was right there in the plot, you know, and I got to... I got to do what I do, which is weave it into the Martian mythology and everything. Yeah, yeah. Now, at the same time, though, that story took away Gypsy's happy ending where she goes back with her parents and goes back to school. And then by the end of that story, she's in a whole different place. But it seemed like you got some more mileage out of Gypsy. How did you feel about that character once you revisited her since you had her pop up uh, quite a bit after that? Yeah. Now, a lot of those choices were Keith's choices because I'd, I'd come get the plot and go, oh, look, I guess Gypsy's here, you know? And then it was always my job to go, okay, let's let's find a way into her head. Let's see how we can deepen her and expand her and that story allowed us to do that did you ever have to talk keith out of killing anybody no i never tried to talk keith at all you know i don't think i have ever had to say keith don't do that oh maybe once in a while we're on the phone and we're discussing ideas and i go i don't know if that's going to work or not but here's the amazing thing about keith and and i said this on the panel the other day a he is one of the single most creative humans i've ever known in any medium you know not just in comics anywhere anyhow and you talk about talking to him about changing things. So the story that, to me, defines Keith is years ago we were in the hall at D.C. and we were going to do a story for Secret Origins, the secret origin of Nort, who I, who I love beyond reason. <laughs> um, and he, tell, he tells me the story. Well, it's going to be like this and this and this and this and this and this and da 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 What do you think? I said, you know, Keith, I don't really like that story. I don't think it works. And he took a breath for about five seconds, and he went, well, how about this? It's this and that. And a whole new story came out of his head, you know? He is so creative. Uh, it, it, it's just, I, I always joke, it's like when my, when my kids were little, they had these bubble bears. And you press the be- plastic bear's belly, and the head popped up, and out came all these bubbles. And that's Keith. You squeeze his belly, and out come a bunch of ideas. You don't like those ideas? Squeeze his belly again in five minutes, and some more ideas will come out, you know? He's really, he's brilliant. And I, we've been working together for more than 25 years now, and I enjoy it as much more now than I did then. JLA Annual Number 5, the Armageddon 2001 Annual. Was that your ideal ending for JLI, where you got to look at where those characters would be in, I think it was 15 years at that point in time, and see where they ended up? Or was it just... You know, it, at the time, it was just another story and just another issue. So it was, I, was, I wasn't thinking like, ah, oh, this is the, a great grand finale story for them. Because we were still in the, pretty much in the middle of our run at that time, I think. Well, you were juggling War of the Gods, Armageddon 2001, Breakdowns. I can't remember all the crossovers you were having to deal with at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Breakdowns was one. That 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 was one. That was a, the last big thing we did. And if there was any one story that maybe I think Keith and I would both go, well, we're sorry that we did that one because it was just it was just one of those giant crossovers that went on too long. You know. Luckily, we got to take a breath after that and do a real final issue and Kevin came back for that and it was great well it happened to be 62 were you all just trying to reach that magical five year point I honestly don't remember I really we probably we, you know we had decided at some point and maybe it was in the middle of breakdowns where we both said I think we're done you know we, 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 um, we've done a lot of really great work on this book and we've gone as far as we could go and little did we know that 10 years later we'd be back to revisit those characters and revisit them again and now here we are again in Justice League 3001 with Beetle and Booster and Fire and Ice and revisiting them again. When we were done with that book, 
we thought we really thought we were done. I never knew if I, I never thought I'd necessarily even work with Keith again. Not because there was any negative anything, but I was by that point I think under contract to Marvel again, and he was doing other things. And then we came back together to do I can't believe it's not the Justice League. Um, no, formerly known as the Justice League, with Kevin, and it was the first time that the three of us kind of went. Oh my God! What we do together is good. We didn't. We weren't thinking about it then because we were on a treadmill. We had so much material we were cranking out. It's like here's the plot. Write the script. Turn it in. Go on to the next plot. So when we got back together after like whatever it was nine or ten years, that was when we went. This is great. We have something unique here that we don't have when we collaborate with anybody else. We have to keep doing this, you know. But we were so stupid we didn't know that we had it in the first place. You know? One of my favorite images of the Marsh Manhunter is that three-panel shot by Kevin McGuire from number sixty, where he's just flying off into the horizon, says just goodbye. Was your intention for him to just go away for a while, let him work out? Because I mean, for about a year and a half, two years into the series, you kept having him say, "I'm not your big green Martian Martinet. I need some time to process all this information." And that's when he finally took it. And then immediately, like a year later, he's back. His blood went. Right. Well, I think I think at that point it was a natural outgrowth for the character. It, it made sense. Now, I don't know also if whoever was taking over after that requested that he not be on the team. I don't know. I don't remember what the behind-the-scenes machinations were, but it was, a, it, was, it was a proper ending for him at that point in time, yeah. Um, one of the major through lines of your run on JLI was the redemption of Max Lord. And then, of course, a few years later, a number of years later, he was turned into an outright villain, murderous, all that kind of good stuff. Um, is it just Are you just crestfallen when something like that happens, when you spend five years of your life developing the Max Lord character, showing him go from being a creep to a good person, and then they just turn around and undo it all? I have two answers to that, and they're contradictory. One is absolutely, you know, because you're invested in that character, and the character means something to you, and then you see something like that happen, and you go, oh... God, what did they do? Why did they do that, you know? And then you take a deep breath and you realize it's comics. I've done the same thing. Somebody else has done something with a character and and I come along and I reinvent it and I change it. So after like, you know, the first couple of days of going, oh my, I can't, and then you take a deep breath and you let it go and you realize our stories are all still out there. That Maxwell Lord is still out there. And one of the great things about what we're doing with Justice League 3000 and 3001 is... We're in the universe that you last saw at the end of I Can't Believe It's Not the Justice League. Anything that happened between then did not happen in the universe we're in. When we talk about Max Lord in that book, it's the Max Lord that we all knew and loved, and he was a good guy, and he never shot Blue Beetle, and they all lived happily ever after. You know what I mean? So... In the end, it all worked out, didn't it? It's a great book to go back and read because you've got Max still there, Sue and Ralph Dibney are still together. It's one of those books I like to read as a palate cleanser when I'm tired of all the darkness, just to revisit those characters again. And people always point out that there's some there's some throwaway line I had in one issue where they said, we better get back there or Max is going to shoot me in the head or something like that, you know? <laughs> Little knowing that that's exactly what would happen years later. John Ostrander named John Jones's wife and daughter Maria and Kim. Do you like the names? What were the names that he used? I don't know. Uh, Maria and Kim with a bunch of apostrophes and variant spellings. It's fine with me. I have a lot of respect for John Ostrander. If it was good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Did you ever get to read his tribute issue with Doug Monkey and Marshman Hunter when they revisited the JLI? No, I never did. I never did. I'd recommend it. It's Marshman Hunter on a Choco uh, Oreo rampage, and uh, they, they do their best to channel the spirit of your run. Oh, you know what? That sounds familiar, so I think I might have. I might have. Yeah, yeah. It's always nice when people go back and they connect with what we did. And some, some guys can pull it off and some guys can't, you know, but from what I recall, that story, <coughs> excuse me, very much did. 
All I wanted was to send a signal to Mars. How, how could I have known it would teleport you here? Whoever you are, forgive me. An alien, an innocent one, stranded on this planet. It was a golden age. Our Martian civilization was at the height of its peace and prosperity. White Martians came from beneath the planet's surface, bringing fire from the planet's guts, and they burned us all. Every trace of our once great civilization was obliterated. I lost my family, my wife, and my daughters. I was the only survivor, the last of my kind. I sought refuge on your planet, on Earth. I was hunted for 50 years. The humans are terrified of what they don't know. And sadly, I happen to fall into that category. Detective John Jones is what you might call my human alter ego. I'm not the only thing from outer space that's come, but right now I'm the only thing that can stop alien invasion. I dealt with these phantoms when I was a bounty hunter. I know how powerful they can be. I can't fight these fugitives alone. My name is John Jones, also known as the Martian Manhunter. Telepathy is one of my many abilities. I am a shapeshifter. Martian manpower? I change my state or phase. I'll call upon new powers. I'm Mars' sole survivor. There's a reason for that. I will defend Earth. The vital end of Diabalu. A podcast for John Jones. Manhunter for Mars. His world. And the vile menagerie of villains he must confront. Available through iTunes, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive. Okay, you wrote some of the best episodes of Justice League and Batman the Brave and the Bold, and some of them have featured Despero and the Martian Manhunter. Did you have any challenges in adapting them to the new medium? No, you know, not really. Um, it's You go in with a very different headset. You know, writing animation, writing television is not the same as writing comics. For one thing, it's a much more collaborative medium. If you're hired as a freelancer in TV, you know, you've got a producer, you've got a story editor, you've got guys that have worked out the map of the show... When you're really hired to execute their vision for the show and then ideally bring as much of yourself and your vision to the table. But I, you know, it's not about me going, oh, I'm going to write Justice League Unlimited. Here's where the show is going now. No, because they have that in hand, you know. So I have, in comics, there's a lot of freedom. Even on, you know, mainstream uh, iconic characters. I've had so much freedom with Spider-Man, with Justice League, with all these characters to do them exactly the way I want them, you know? With Justice League, with, with the animation, you're doing the show the way the producers want to do the show. So I take off my uh, personal vision hat and I put on my collaboration hat and then it's, I have a great time because these guys are really smart and really creative and really talented and between all of us, we work things out, you know, and that's, and I loved working on those shows. I mean, the first thing on Justice League that they handed me was the Alan Moore story. Yeah, I got to caught that anecdote yesterday. That was great. And you said yeah, that's the only time you've ever had a first draft accepted for animation. I think that was one of the few times, yeah, where, and, but that one I thought, okay, you know, I'd written for TV before. I just turned in the first draft. Where are the notes? And like, I don't know, a week and a half went by and I thought, oh my God, I must have totally screwed this up. They're going to fire me, have someone else rewrite it. And then I called up my buddy Stan Berkowitz, who worked on the show, and he said, no, no, you got it right. Don't worry about it. That's why there's no second draft. We don't need a second draft. And then I did the second, the next episode after thinking, oh, I'll just do a first draft. And they were like, here's all the notes. Now let's do the second draft, you know. So, but I, I loved working on that show. Brave and the Bold, uh, maybe my favorite out of all of them. Because, well, A, every week it was different characters. Not just every week, but within the same show. Because you had the teaser, which was like a mini episode. And then you had the main story. 
And the other thing I loved about that show is because it skewed, it skewed younger, but it skewed younger in a way that I've had so many guys come up to me and say, I watched that show with my six-year-old son and some 40-year-old will say, and we both enjoyed it. You know, and there's not a lot of things where you get a you know a father and his and his six-year-old son both loving the show and both enjoying it. I really had a great time, and it was a wide variety of stories for that show. And despite the fact that it was very kid-friendly, it seemed they kept throwing me these really dark stories, like the Doom Patrol story where they all die in the end, or the Red Tornado story where he has a son, which is one of my favorites that I did for them, who basically it ends with a mercy killing, you know? It's like he has to turn his son off and kill him because he, he can't fix him and he's out of control. It's a really sad story, you know? But I, I really... I've had a lot of fun working in animation. I just had a Batman animated movie, Batman vs. Robin, that just came out last month on DVD. And so the animation work that I've done over the past 10 to 12 years has been a really, a real highlight of my career. I've really enjoyed it. This year marks the 60th anniversary of The Martian Manhunter. You've given us just a brilliant praise for that character, a wealth of information and anecdotes. Uh, is there anything else you would like to say about The Manhunter before we close? No, the only thing is that having this conversation has made me realize again how much I love that character and how much I would love to do another Martian Manhunter story. So I'm like, now you've put Martian Manhunter like forefront in my brain. But I also, again, got to write him in the animation. In the animation, So that was another opportunity to revisit that character. Um, in fact, we did a couple of episodes of Brave and the Bold where it was uh, the JLI. And we got to play with that same dynamic, which was really a lot of fun. But yeah, I love the character, and anyone from DC's out there listening, I want to write another Martian Manhunter story. The last issue you did of Justice League, you said your two favorite characters to write in that book were Blue Beetle and Martian Manhunter. Does it still hold true today? Probably. The, the Beetle Booster team and their dynamic, but if I had to pick one, it would be Beetle, because he feels closer to me and who I am, you know? Uh, and, and Martian Manhunter, absolutely. I love all the other characters, they're great, but those are my favorites, yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Wonderful to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thanks to everyone who supported the first edition of Amazing Heroes Interviews. Adam Blackmoon, Ange, Count Druncula, Eternal Rage, Firestorm Fan, Jackie Earl Haley, Keith G. Baker, and Luke Dobb. I apologize for the nearly two-year-long gap between editions, but the truth to tell, most of these interviews were conducted to supply material to the Martian Manhunter's 60th Anniversary Specials, which were episodes 15 and 20 of the Idle Head of Diablo podcast. I turned around the Peter David edition fairly quickly because it was easy to extricate the Martian Manhunter material from everything else we discussed, since he hadn't had a ton of experience writing that character. Meanwhile, with uh, J.M. DeMatteis, a good chunk of our interview related to John Jones and the character kept coming up over and over again so pulling that material out and putting it into roughly four and a half hours worth of podcasts specific to that character very effort intensive very time consuming and also I didn't want to have the specials diminish the interview that you're listening to here and vice versa because there would be so much overlap I wanted there to be a nice gap and uh, yeah pull that off also some of the material from the Demetrius interviews purred up in the Marvel Superheroes podcast 50th episode devoted to Captain America. So all the more reason to give it a little bit of time before representing a lot of this same material. Further, I kept hoping that we would get further along with the Marvel Superheroes podcast to cover more Patsy Walker material, which hasn't really happened. Still no episode covering the original Defenders, much less the new Defenders. All apologies to Kyle Benning on that front. We did finally get to do that Son of Satan episode, though, and episodes on 
Doctor Strange, which, come to think of it, Demetrius may have been in one of those as well. I don't recall if I edited him into those or not. So as you can see, this episode was tied into a whole bunch of other projects that I prioritized over the more raw interview material. And I hasten to note that a lot of the material related to the Martian Manhunter was taken out of this edition because I thought it was just too much into the weeds. I figured that this presentation needed to be more general audience friendly. We also previously addressed the mail that we got on the Peter David interview in the Marvel Superheroes podcasts, but I figured I would revisit them here. Dr. Ange offered great stuff. David's catalog is lengthy, so no surprise that you didn't get to talk about everything. I am sure that many people are lamenting the lack of X-Force talk. He wrote X-Factor, but okay. I would want to talk about Supergirl, but that's my niche. But the stuff here was just great. In particular, I love reading the stuff about Gene DeWolf. So fascinating to hear him say that he went back to reread all of his fan letters as a way to combat the harsh response to her death. I didn't read his Hulk stuff, although I have heard about it enough to have a sense about it. I do like that Doc Sampson was elevated to something more than background green-haired guy. And that Skullhead Meteor story is a hoot. Cisco just said, great interview. Uh, Martin Gray wrote, that was a blast. I've never heard Peter David speak. He sounds great company. The man is such a talented writer. I'm only sad you didn't have time to get to his Supergirl work. Still plenty of meat, and I really appreciate the annotations. The Atlantis Chronicles Meteor story was a hoot. And I'll point out that uh, Dr. Ange had hoped for some Supergirl material too, but it was my first ever interview with a professional recorded under a tight convention mandated deadline but I still feel like a putz for not going deeper into the pad catalog or at least asking what David thought of the Supergirl pilot slash trailer obviously my focus was on Peter David's early career but given the chance I'd love to spend more time with this fellow I actually got to see him live during a panel discussion in uh, San Diego back in the year 2000 and he was excellent in that he's always great fun to listen to and because I've enjoyed so much Peter David material I could easily do several more hours worth of interview with him I just need to Dave in and do the research. I'm sure Mr. Fixit would have loved some uh, more incredible Hulk discussion as well. Unfortunately, David has not been back into town since 2015, so until that happens, this is what I've got. I also think I did better with this second interview, which I had advertised previously was with another of the greatest writers in the history of comics. Twitch Ryan Daly commented, Oh, please be Chuck Austin. Oh, please be Chuck Austin. 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 I've never met Chuck Austin. Sorry, dude. Finally, the Shag noted, great interview, really enjoyed hearing about Atlantis Chronicles. By the way, Shag has a great interview with Mr. Demetrius that he did for his JLI podcast, so do go and check that out. Also, while I've got your ear, please consider donating some money to Peter David. He's got, uh, last I heard, an $80,000 tax bill that turned up because he made a pretty good amount of money while he was working on the short-lived, I believe it was a Nickelodeon show called Space Cases with Bill Mummy. Uh, he went through a divorce in the meantime. The ex took half the money that he had saved for his taxes, thus the $80,000 bill so if you can help the fella out he's one of the greats so please consider giving him your support director fury the internet is besieged with lame lifeless podcasts what we need is a hard charging foul mouth band of brothers with chemistry big brains on comics and personality personality goes a long way what we need is the marvel superheroes podcast i'm a legal machine diablo frank and i am mr fixit Nick, internet radio is saved. Get this mother podcast off mother iTunes. The Marvel Superheroes podcast can also be found on Shout Engine, Stitcher, the Internet Archive, and on Rolled Spine Podcasts blogs. Yeah, Baron Zemo is one of my favorite villains. I know that you didn't create the character because the Phoenix was brought up before them, but you definitely made Baron, him Baron Zemo. That's one of the fun things. Hold up. All right. I'm sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. I didn't know. I don't know. 
That's fine. Nope. Make sure I sign the books. Yeah, we'll get that. Oh, I need to sign. We were just talking about these stories. Oh, yeah, I love Varman, too. He was actually in one of those cap stories you did with Gary Gamble, so, yeah. I know, he, he, he knows his stuff, yeah. Literally, he knows his stuff. Cause, <laughs> yeah, one of my internet friends, the Irredoom, will shag. You turn him into a Dr. Fate through that fan through that run. He's one of his favorite runs in comics. That's great. That's good. I hope to collect that someday. So, was I in the middle of what? Let's just scrap We'll just scrap that, yeah. Move on to the next thing.